2: We were, um, before we hit record, we actually had to go back and Curtis was scrolling through the, through the, through Spotify there looking for when you were on the show last time. And I'm like, this, this actually blew me away. I would have, my guess was two years ago. It was uh, episode 27, 2020. Is that right, Curtis? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, time, time flies. Um, I think we all lost two or three years in COVID there, so it's technically only like two years since since we've been together. But uh, awesome to have you back. Um, a lot of people have been asking about you over the years, saying, Gosh, it would be really cool to get Chad back on the sh- on the show and stuff." So you got a bit of a fan base out there that's been with us since the beginning. So it's uh, glad glad you could make it back. We've been having some really good conversations on the phone since over the last couple months since before Christmas that's been pretty pretty cool Uh, I've been enjoying those so before before we kind of get too far into it I somebody messaged me today on social media and they had some screenshots and we got targeted by this group called um tourists against trophy hunting (laughs) And uh, they were, they didn't like us. They had one of our, one of our podcasts up and they said, we're a international trophy hunting organization. And you would be shocked at some of the guests that they have on their show. And uh, so anyways, I was like, oh, who, I never heard of this group before. So anyways, I, uh, the, the person that sent me the screenshots um, said, yeah, this is on Facebook. So I went and found them on Facebook and I'm scrolling down. There's a couple of things where they uh, they got on some things that that we had done, and I found you. They they had been on your case uh, a while ago, so uh, I think off of your uh, personal uh, Facebook page. So I was like, well, we're we're both not getting Christmas cards, I gather, from tourists against trophy hunting. So I don't even know where they're from, if they're from BC or elsewhere so
3: yeah those uh (laughs) those public posts of mine with the uh grizzly that me and my kids have been able to harvest uh they they get a lot of attention from both sides so i I would say 80 percent of the people that share those posts are saying right on this is exactly what needs to happen and 20 percent of them are you know saying the ridiculous things about how terrible this is and how it's against yeah. their value systems and stuff like that so it is what it is and when you're a politician you're used to not uh being liked by everybody
2: no um <clears throat> and we're not in politics but the uh, long the the more you grow on social media as a platform like this you kind of end up with sort of the same the same following um people that get mad at you for the littlest things. so anyways I thought that was kind of kind of an interesting little thing I mean it literally just happened today so for folks that are new to the podcast um, if you haven't binge listened and gone all the way back to episode 27 when Chad was first on uh, on the show with us I'll, I'll give you a little bit about like what? What was that conversation was about, and how that'll kind of segue into today's conversation? So, um, it was it was j- just after a couple of years after uh, the government of BC canceled the grizzly bear hunt. Uh, we talked a bit about that. You talked about how um, it was sort of unfolded, you know, a bit of a sh- a bit of a shock to you and your government, just the lack of consultation. From the province on their plans to to ban the hunt, you talked about the impacts um, that Tlalten people were seeing on the land in changes in predators uh, and the impacts on caribou and moose, which are the primary um, you know species that people hunt hunt for their families. You talked about history of tall tan people and managing predators like it's not a new thing it's just part of what you did on the land for generations and I really remember a, a part where you talked about the tall tan bear dog uh, and and that was really really cool I remember doing research after that and old black and white photographs and so it was this specific breed of dog that was bred for hunting um, that was exclusive to Taltan people and it went extinct um, because of colonization so and all of the impacts that came with that that you talked a little bit about that and and another thing that I thought was really interesting when you talked about how guiding um, and guide outfitting and taking other hunters out was an important part of Taltan Tan culture uh, as well and so that was kind of one of the you know the repercussions of losing grizzly bears uh, as a huntable species, cause that was important. Guiding people for it was important to, t- to tall 10. But you were, you were kind of getting into talking about where you wanted to go with wildlife management and predator management, and kind of talking about wanting to encourage tall 10 people to get back out on the land and start harvesting bears um, and kind of get a balance back into certain areas of the territory. And I remember, you know, you said at that time, if I'm going to ask people to get back out there and and do this for us and future generations, I'm gonna I'm gonna need to learn how to do it myself as well. And uh, I think you're gonna you got some great stuff to share with us since since that that podcast, and uh, we're gonna dive into part two. Of, of those those things so that just gives people a little bit of a background on um, on the premise for this this conversation with with chad so hey everybody it's mark hall your host
1: and it's curtis hall your co-host the hunter conservationist podcast is brought to you by J martin taxidermy recreating the memories of your hunt with passion precision and pride based out of west Kelowna, bc offering a clean and modern facility, fully equipped to handle all your wildlife taxidermy needs. Servicing clients from all around the world, J. Martin Taxidermy is happy to take care of all necessary wildlife mount permits, crating, and inspections needed for international taxidermy export. Fully certified and insured by the CFIA, they can export trophies to clients worldwide. So maybe you've come in for some kind of sweet elk hunt, maybe in the near future, hopefully a grizzly bear hunt and get it shipped back and wherever you may be from. So as always, we're grateful for the support that J. Martin Taxidermy provides for us here at the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Thank you, Jesse.
2: Absolutely, thank you. Chad Day, president of the Taltan Central Government, Taltan Territory is in northwestern British Columbia, and it is massive. Uh, If I remember right, it covers 11% of the area of British Columbia. Welcome back. So tell us about your journey since we were last together in hunting and your kids starting in hunting and you getting into it like for yourself and, and with your kids. Tell us about that.
3: Yeah, it's been uh, quite the journey. Maybe before I do that, I, I just quickly want to commend you guys for your, your ongoing success with the uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. I've been uh, keeping track. I listen to probably about one-third, you know, when you guys start talking about turkeys and things like that that aren't in Taltan <laughs> territory. <laughs> I don't always uh, listen as in depth, but um, I, I appreciate all the work that you're doing. I know that you've got a uh, bigger platform, and some things have, have changed. And uh, just want to commend you for that dedication. Want to congratulate uh, Curtis on on being married and all that. Um, oh, I you. think yeah. I, I don't think I was married quite yet, or maybe I had just gotten married when um, when we spoke last, and I have a have had a couple more kids and have my last one coming in, in, uh, in July. And last night we just found out that it's going to be a, it's going to be a boy. So a couple of my, um, friends, uh, messaged me and said, you know, congratulations on having another hunter. But I was quick to remind them that, uh, my 13 year old daughter is, is also a hunter, but, uh, yeah, I wanted to say that to you guys. So thanks right on. Thank you. Getting to, uh, your question. I, it, it, part of me feels like I talked to you guys last year. And then another part of me feels like it was 10 years ago. Uh, my life has changed significantly since, uh, getting into hunting. I would say that before really getting into hunting about, uh, four years ago during COVID times my number one uh, passion outside of my my family and my people was definitely sports. And I'm still passionate about sports, but I would say I'm far more passionate about hunting. And uh, I know that because I gave up playing basketball and doing a few other sports because I uh, told my kids, I said, I'm not risking injury and giving up our ability to go out there you know, hunting, because, uh, some, sometimes we, we've been out there hiking around, you know, 12, 15 kilometers in a day. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just been great. So I would say four years ago, I went out and, uh, went up on Level Mountain there in Taltan territory. In the first 24 hours, I was with, uh, one of our staff members and with the guide outfitter slash personal friend slash uh, pilot. I'm sure that people back home will know who I'm talking about. And all three of us were on this little perch by, by level mountain. All of us had binoculars. We're all looking around the brush. Didn't see anything. We turned around. We started walking down this, this little hill, and then we heard a noise behind us. We turned around and there's a, um, you know, there's a female grizzly with two cubs the same size as she was. And uh Buddy had a, a video camera and stuff, so he he turns on the video camera and the other both these guys were non-taltan. So the experienced hunter said, you know, get your gun up. And if she takes a few more steps down that down that hill, I mean you might you might have to have to shoot her. And I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. Like I didn't, this was not what I signed up for. I did not want to shoot a female uh, grizzly bear in my first 24 hours in this absolutely beautiful, uh, sacred place. And it was almost like, uh, like she just knew what was said and gave us a, a big look and then uh, turned around running. And the, the two Uh, big two-year-old three-year-old cubs whatever they were uh, ran with her and it was just a huge uh, lesson to me that um, whether people are experienced hunters or not you just always got to be so careful out there Uh, the grizzly bears are just so stealthy so sneaky when they want to be and um, you know we, we spent a couple more days up there we saw a lot of Caribou, grizzly bears. We didn't end up um, harvesting uh, anything in, in, in that particular trip. Ended up getting my first uh, moose shortly after that. That was a whole um, journey in itself. Four hundred yards. I still don't know how I hit it. I just thought it was so far. I thought it was ridiculous that I was even shooting at it. And uh, you know, you'll never forget your your first one. And the year after that, I felt like, okay, I think I'm, I'm at least ready to bring my son out with me and and other uh, expert hunters. And at the time, he was, uh, he was 14 years old, and um, we ended up uh, going up to Highland Post area. We always want to put ourselves in places where there's a high uh, ungulate population, you know calving population so that when we uh, do harvest uh, grizzly bears specifically, that we are saving as many ungulates as possible. We would never go after uh, fish eating bears or bears in areas that we consider it, it unnecessary. The, the goal is to, to help out our vulnerable uh, predator populations, or sorry, help out our vulnerable uh, ungulate populations. And yeah, that was, that was a heck of an experience. Um, He ended up, uh, I ended up just panicking, missed the bear twice. Uh, My son had had shots the day before at a different bear and he had missed. So we were, you know, he was kind of gun shy and I just, I just said, you know, you got to shoot. And he ended up taking down an eight foot um, grizzly bear um, before I ever did. And again, just uh, just an incredible uh, memory. And later that uh, that fall, he got his first moose, and I brought two of my other kids out with me. We actually went out to um, to an area that has been utilized by the Day family for for generations. Um, that was with my my cousin uh, Jared Quack, and I just want to recognize him cause he was our first, uh, Tal 10 central government guardian ever. And he was, uh, my first cousin and we were the same age and he, he passed away from, from cancer shortly after, um, shortly after that trip, he, he was, he was sick when we took that trip. But, you know, we, we knew that could possibly, possibly be his last, uh, trip out there. And whenever I, I talk about wildlife and whenever we're, we're hunting, he's just always, you know, in my heart. And there's a, a Guardian Award that's uh, that's named after him now that they present in, I guess, it would be Ottawa every year. And last year was the first year, but they're, they're going to keep that award going. So just want to recognize uh, Jarrett when I tell that story because mm. we will never... Forget that, uh, that moose hunting story. And shortly after that, we did, uh, our first, our first goat hunt, um, that was in and around, you know, I I won't talk about the exact locations all the time, but, uh, it it was in around our, one of our home communities and he had missed a, um, a goat from pretty, pretty in close on the, the first day that we went out. And he was so upset and, um, you know, we went back to, to the camp and everything. And I said, Hey man, don't worry about it. You know, like if you don't get anything, when we go home, you can be upset. But for all we know, there might be an enormous, awesome goat. Not that we're out there trying to get the biggest, best one, but you know, who knows? Right. And he's, he's 14. So of course, you know, he, he he thinks like a teenager and uh two days later he ended up taking down this uh gorgeous mountain goat with 11 inch horns and at the time i thought ah no big deal just a mountain goat and when we uh when we brought home the meat and the hide and you know the head and everything else my my father you know is a tal 10 elder who hunted for decades and he said Oh my goodness! This is an absolutely uh, gorgeous, huge goat, and we didn't even know. Um, we we utilized all the meat. We did everything we were we were supposed to do in a good way, but we had no intention of uh, getting the head and all of that taxidermy. But we were kind of pushed to to do that, and you know, to this day, it's it's above my uh, my son's uh, king size bed, and that uh, grizzly was on we got his first grizzly turned into a rug. So that was on his king size uh, bed for, for about a year until we donated it for a good cause. So that was all, you know, Malachi, just in, in one year. And I'm just one of those people that when I, when I put my foot down and, and I say, I'm going to do something, um, it's going to happen. And I just decided that year that, um, I was going to take my, my eldest son out, take out the other kids when I could, and that we would, you know, hopefully start building some new traditions, new memories. And sure enough, that was that was kind of year um, one of, of taking, taking them out. And we've done it for, uh, for three years in a row now. And yeah, my daughter this past season got her first big game animal She shot a uh, caribou at 13 years old. Again, could go into all those stories about that. We hiked down to it. She took a shot, missed, scoped herself in the head. Luckily, luckily she wasn't bleeding, but I could see she had this huge, you know, shrine on her head. And I just screamed at her and said, hey, like, we can still get them. Like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about your head. Let's just get into another position. And uh, somebody was recording us kind of from afar and we got into another position. She shot and uh, the caribou just dropped immediately. And he, uh, he was showing us the footage afterwards and he was telling a group back at camp, he said, you know, that was just so cute the way that she screamed in joy and I burst out laughing. and I said, that was me screaming in joy. That was not my daughter. <laughs> and uh, yeah, wow. so, you know, it's it's been uh it's been amazing man we've uh we harvested more uh grizzly bears than anybody in the taltan nation this past year we've been out uh several different locations it it probably sounds like when i'm telling these stories that we um we spent a lot of time out on the land but really every every year that we've been doing it we're lucky to get uh Two weeks out there together, but um, you know when you're accompanied by by people that really know what they're doing, uh, know the areas, and with uh, with a little bit of luck, um, you're you're able to to be successful. And it's it's completely changed uh, the way that I I think about the territory. Obviously, there's a huge difference between talking about wildlife and actually experiencing. Uh, all of these moving parts and it gives you a whole new appreciation for all those people who are, you know, experts in the, in the wildlife world. And it's something that um, I'm going to keep pursuing, hopefully throughout my life.
2: Cool. Hmm. Have you, have you seen like changes in your kids? you know because you're taking them hunting they're having these experiences that you know starting at a relatively young age Curtis was 10 uh when when you know he got his first first big game animal and stuff and I just as a dad just kind of you know just that was really like that's what I'm here for like this is not about me it's like he's he's doing this he's learning he's gaining the skills and and the knowledge and you know that's that's the next generation and have you seen like changes in your kids kind of like because you know they're hunting or changes with their with their friends in school like how they interact with the outdoors like what are what are some things that you've seen in them
3: i don't know how much it's changed them because of course they're kids so they're changing every year i mean malachi probably grew a foot since i last talked to you guys and (laughs) my daughter used to want to be on my shoulders 24 7 and now she barely talks to me so (laughs) things uh (laughs) things change but uh what i can say is when we're out there together it's uh those are just the best times because the the phones the phones don't work uh we're just you know talking all the time we've got a common common goal we're all on the same side uh all my kids are very athletic and uh it's definitely built i think a lot of character and um like i just love watching them play sports they're amazing athletes but uh, to see them out in the, in the wilderness, I mean, the, the second year that we went out mountain goat hunting, as is the case with many inexperienced hunters, we, uh, we just ended up not uh, shooting a goat in the, in the right place. And it ran a bit and shot it again. And next thing you know, it's off the side of the cliff and we had to, we went, we went down, we still got it, skinned it out, took everything back. Um, a lot of the meat that we took back was, was bruised. And, you know, one of the, one of the, um, horns was chipped a bit. And, you know, my dad had all of these funny, funny comments, but I mean, you, you just learn, you just learn things the hard way. Right. And, um, we had to, go up this hill which just felt never ending because th- this had happened and i just it was a full moon night it was in um october and i just remember thinking like how the hell can my daughter just keep up with with malachi like that and we're just all huff and wind and she relative to her size i think she had the most uh weight relative to her size and i just I just always looked at her differently after that. Like you are incredible. And, uh, that, that, so that's kind of the fun stuff, right. As you, you see these, um, personality pieces and this character development happen through, through those experiences. And, you know, I've, um, I've taken my kids to several different uh, countries and that's always an amazing experience. But if I were to choose today, you know, you could take your kid to, you could take your kids anywhere in the world for a week and get all the tours, or take them anywhere hunting in Taltan territory and and do what we've been doing. I would I would take the hunting trip every time.
2: No, that's uh, that's pretty special. I mean, that's just the the family, the family time and and. Um, yeah, you know, I just think kind of going back to our tourists against trophy hunting thing. Like, those are just such the things that just people don't understand, right? Like those family values and family time, and what is really important to hunting families and and that out there. So uh, it it's great that you shared that. Uh, I mean, I think just any time people can can hear that stories about what families do together and those experiences in the outdoors whether you get something or not uh, and those lessons that you learn it's just a a wonderful part of hunting now it's pretty exciting it's pretty exciting to uh to to see what you're doing and I've seen some of the pictures of your kids and with their animals and stuff and it's just uh it's just so so exciting um of course Curtis and my daughter they're grown and married and kind of still do a little bit but I'm I'm gonna have to bide my time for grandkids to, to go back to that experience. <laughs> so Start out with the grouse and all that kind of stuff. Let's, uh, let's segue into a little bit more um, uh, around the grizzly bear um, hunting stuff. So, you know, we've talked, you've, you've told me kind of about like from a higher level, uh, you know, as a nation, um, what people are seeing with bears, um the concerns, the numbers, uh the impacts on, on moose and caribou, like you said a f- few minutes ago in certain, you know, areas of of the territory. I think you were sharing with me before in one of our one of our conversations kind of about some management goals, uh like you know, as a nation, what you'd like to see for numbers of bears removed and stuff and and the program that you have in place both you know encouraging people to get out in the land and and the people that you've been going with doing it so maybe fill us in on what what you've been accomplishing what you're trying to accomplish what you're struggling with trying to manage predators in you know in these wilderness areas and then maybe touch a little bit kind of um, broaden that out a little bit kind of to to some of the other species that links together with with bears like what's the state of you know, wildlife in in Taltan territory, so.
3: Yeah, so um, building on what we spoke on last time, obviously the uh, province has still not reinstated the grizzly bear hunt. The uh, people that understand wildlife management, the hunters and the people that are out on the land in the territory, um, they're not, happy with um, with what they're seeing on the ground. Uh, Our wildlife department has uh, has grown over the years. And we got to a place where we actually hired four full time, you know, people just for predator management. And that was semi successful when it came to the uh, the wolf trapping, but that's a very Specialized uh, skill. I mean, they're not mice. They're just so intelligent, and um, you you really need to have dedicated staff that become experts over time. And we have a couple of those, but when there's turnover, it's it's been tricky. When it comes to the uh, the grizzly, um, we put in in incentives to to help um, motivate people to to exercise. Their Tan rights to to help us with the populations because we know that the the angulites need it. We know from basically the what I would call community knowledge on the ground that even when there was a um, a grizzly hunt in the past for resident hunters and for guide outfitters, that they were taking out around a hundred male. Grizzly bears every year, and the population on the ground was uh, was seemingly still increasing. And since we last talked, the um, amount of break-ins in, in cabins out on the land has uh, has increased. This isn't from you know garbage and things like this. This is from this is in, into cabins, some of which have never been broken into, some of which haven't been used for for a decade. So we see a lot more uh, of that happening. We put out a, a, press release, I think a couple winters ago and a bear that was quite desperate after the, uh, after it started snowing, actually broke into a cabin that had an old, uh, old lady inside the cabin, outside of Iskut and, uh, she got out of there, thankfully. But, um, obviously that could have been a, a very, very tragic situation. Um, and again, uh, just, just cruising around different areas, I've seen I've, I've seen the, the damage that they do. And ironically, um, the amount of money that we've expended on trying to build our internal capacity to deal with the predator pieces is probably almost on par with the amount of money of, in, in damages that they've, they've caused recently. I would say, in um, in the last two years, I would not be surprised if it's around two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand dollars worth of damage done by, by bears breaking into to cabins. Uh, an example of that is there's a, a cultural area up in the Klepan area that the uh, Iskit community uses quite uh, quite heavily, and uh, I was able to to see the damage done by a bear firsthand and you know when it goes in there and rips into the kitchen and then for some reason has to go rip into almost every cabin just to take a look and cause damage and then you know walk away and I can understand if people say well maybe it was in the kitchen because it smelled something but I can tell you there was nothing in those cabins and it still broke into those cabins and didn't go through the, uh, the front door like a football player. No, that'd be too easy. You know, he had to rip up the back and the insulation and everything else. And to get, to get people out there and to have to sling materials out there because you can't drive it into that, that area anymore. I mean, it's just, it's super um, expensive. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a problem out there.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I guess everything in is magnified, you know, trying to manage wildlife and and like what you said just the remoteness of these areas because of so much of that area is wilderness up there. I mean, down here we take it for granted cuz you know, you're never really that far from a road, but everything is is magnified up there. Now, what about what what are people seeing with caribou and moose populations you know as as far as their interaction with bears like you know you were saying uh, earlier like you have areas you know I, I would assume like on the lower stakine where bear populations are like coastal a lot of lush vegetation and then they got salmon runs uh, and then other areas where you know like i don't know what you call them like mountain bears uh they're living with caribou and moose and more more dependent on them and and it was the those populations with moose and caribou seem to be what you said where the greatest concerns were and what what are what are people seeing is it is it really high densities in calving areas on wintering grounds is it getting animals Like after the rut, before the bear's den up, like kind of what's, what's, what's happening? What's the dynamic?
3: So I can tell you, and this is the difference between the last podcast, of course, is that I I can tell you what I saw. And, uh, I, again, I won't get into the exact locations in case it makes, uh, some community members pissed off, but I can tell you that, um, when was it, it was in August And we were in a mountainous area, and there are no fish runs. So these bears are um, primarily eating uh, what's up there: low bush uh, blueberries and ungulates. And in a three-day period, just given where the um, the quad trail was and where our camp was, and then you know we would obviously branch off from the quad trail and, and hike into certain areas and stuff like that. There was probably a, uh, four or five square kilomet- kilometer radius in there. And we saw 15 different grizzly bears with our eyes. And then we saw, you know, tracks in other areas and we knew that there, there were bears there cause the tracks weren't there the day before. Right and um it, it was just it, w- it was mind-boggling i had been up to that area before and we saw grizzly bear bears in there before actually last summer not last summer well yeah august is still summer uh we we went there and we saw two and i don't know how the boys missed that one but they missed it and uh but we we saw more caribou than we did uh Grizzly bears. And this year, I mean, to see 15 grizzly bears and to see maybe six or seven caribou, and we saw two moose, one was a male, one was a female. Uh, There are areas where, yeah, you see way more grizzly bears than you do uh, ungulate populations. But, um, you know, in a three day period, we came home with a few of them. So we tried to, we tried to help out the uh, the the caribou population. And then actually, um, I went back, it might have been late September, or October. And it was the first time I ever took my, uh, my wife out. And it was the first time that we had ever got, you know, fall grizzly bears, like where they're almost ready to den up and and stuff like that and we ran into um, yeah there was resident uh, hunters out there and there were guide outfitters out there so I'd have to look back on the dates but obviously you were still allowed to um, to be hunting uh, moose and caribou and one group we ran into and they said you know there's a there's a bear just down down the road across here yada yada they explained to us uh, that they had seen this bear on top of uh, on top of a caribou carcass, so we went to the spot. We saw the carcass. The bear wasn't there, and um, you know then we had we had waited and waited, and I was the only one that had patiently waited. And then I got up for a split second. I thought my son was screwing with me. Said there's the bear, and then him and uh, another Tan kid uh, shot and and got this uh, this beautiful bear. But what was so you know, ironic about it is that we had actually brought out um, some non-Tal 10 people that are helping us on the negotiation side of things, and here it is, right in the flesh, a, a bear that had taken down a uh, a caribou in this in this area, and um, yeah, we ended up coming home with with the grizzly bear and, and coming home with a beautiful, uh, set of, uh, caribou horns, but the, you know, the caribou was mostly eaten and and rotten by, by that time. But it was just, yeah, it was just amazing. And for my wife, she's, uh, she's from the Philippines. So to see all this, I mean, it was just mind boggling for her. And she, she just told me, you know, when I, when I used to, clean some of the things after a hunting trip I really wasn't happy with you guys but now I totally get it and now I totally understand how you know you get blood all over and this all over and all these weird smells and all this stuff it's because you know it's uh, it's difficult you have to cross rivers you, or streams you fall you get this you get that like uh that was an amazing um experience too and, and Malachi actually ended up getting over 80 pounds of um of grizzly bear fat from from that particular bear
2: wow yeah that's uh man the the fat in some some cases off of bears is almost like a more prized thing than you know than the meat just because there's it's such a such a unique you know product that you get off of, off of a bear compared to The types of fat that are on on moose and elk and deer and whatnot. Now, I mean, kind of talking about you know managing grizzly bears um, from a predation perspective, you know, and and um, you know the focus being on on caribou and moose populations, keeping them sustainable because that's the you know the primary species that. People hunt for, you know, for their winter food. Like having been involved in this in a few years, kind of like what? What are your thoughts around like the challenges? Like everybody talks about, we should do predator management. We should do predator management, and and here you are with a bunch of years of experience of of trying to do this. It's obviously, you know, harder or easier to say than you know than to get done and be interesting to, to know what kind of your thoughts are of like, how, how do you ramp that up to like a landscape scale uh, when you're talking about places that are, that are so big. Cause I don't, I don't know unless you have different, uh, different ideas. There only really seems to be like three ways to approach it at a larger scale, which is helicopters like they do in Alaska, um, dedicated teams, um, of people like what you were talking about in the, um, <laughs> in the wildlife department that we're, you know, getting specializing on uh, wolf trapping or just individual hunters on the ground that are just doing other stuff, having the opportunity to take bears and then that adds up, you know, just in, in sheer numbers. What what challenges you've been facing and what what advice do you have about this concept of landscape scale predator management?
3: Yeah, obviously the, uh, the bigger, the, the territory, the more difficult this is, the further you are away from, um, a lot of those helicopters and and things of that nature. We have 11% of, um, of the landmass in, uh, in British Columbia, as you alluded to earlier. And I often tell people, I say, you know, we, what, Taltan territory has maybe 800 Taltans and, you know, what, what is it? Maybe 16,000 grizzlies. Like there's so many, there are so many bears out there and for, for people in Vancouver and Victoria and outside of the province to be, to be dictating to us how, um, you know, we should be managing. Well, life I mean it, it, there's a lot of pressure on on us to do that but in terms of how we do it obviously um, we we want to be able to work with the province to to just utilize best practices and and what makes sense there's other jurisdictions that spend a lot of uh, time and, and money to develop best practices and to to do the um the inventory work and stuff like that but it, it takes a lot of money it takes a lot of capacity and I guess uh, I would say that it, it's just going to have to be a, a collective effort I'm during this episode I'm past this whole thing about expecting the province to wake up tomorrow and, and start doing the the right thing I understand how how politicians think they need to win. They need to make uh, decisions that are going to allow them to win. They have a hard time making decisions on pieces that they don't understand. And we don't have politicians who are hunters. We only are represented by, um, by one person in in this area, meaning Smithers. I'm coming to you from Smithers and he covers Smithers all the way up to Atlin um it's probably close to you know 25 or 30 percent of british columbia and uh you know love him as a as a friend and as a person but he's never hunted his boys don't hunt they're not they're not hunters so i don't blame them for not uh for not understanding um how things are on the on the ground i hope to to take him hunting I, I wish the pre, the new premier would go hunting i wish that they would they would see these things on the ground and, and talk to the people. And if they don't have the ability to make those decisions or want to make those decisions, then let's work out something with the indigenous people and with other wildlife stakeholders so that um, we can put those decisions into other people's hands and you guys can still get the votes and play your your political games and we can still have wildlife.
2: Yeah, that's... Uh that's a challenge uh, in the north you know and and you know, as far as like representation you know f- from for an mla back back to victoria when you think about you know if you get into into the lower mainland you get literally some place that you can like in your car drive 10 minutes down the highway or whatever and you've already gone through, like, two MLAs, (laughs) the um, uh, electoral areas or or whatever they call it. Like, there's thousands of them down in the Lower Mainland. And like you said, there's, like, one person that covers, you know, maybe 25 or 30% of the province. So, yeah, it's big, big issues. Um, I guess at times you probably feel pretty pretty isolated up there when it comes to these types of issues with wildlife management and having people want to know what's going on that far away from Victoria.
3: Yeah, and I, I have some ideas for, you know, Taltans to take this into our hands uh, even even more in the future. And I would encourage other Indigenous people to, to really take take the wildlife management into your own hands as much as you can. I know that it can be um, expensive, but I, I think there, there are ways to uh, to do that, if you empower the right type of people, give them the right type of support, insulate them from all the quote unquote lateral violence that comes with working for indigenous governments, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, a lot to, to deal with. I, I know that. But, um, and then one other piece that I wanted to add to the options that you talked about, and it's kind of a, a funny story, when I really started thinking about this, it came from a Facebook message somebody in california wrote me and said uh you know i see that you harvest grizzly bears blah 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 can i uh pay you some money and can you bring down a grizzly bear because i'm from a tribe and we used to have grizzly bears and we want to do a ceremony blah 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 and i said well i'm not uh, like we can't sell sell them that's against the rules And in the back of my mind, I thought, ah, I wonder if this is some kind of NGO trying to entrap me or something like that. And I said, uh, I said to the person, I said, if you're genuinely, you know, an indigenous person and everything like that, um, you can come up to British Columbia, and if it's uh, if it's just parts of a grizzly bear, like I don't know, maybe maybe we could talk to the to the people that make those decisions, and maybe I can give it to you. But there's no way that. that I can sell anything in that kind of a situation. But what it got me thinking about was, you know, if you want, if California indigenous people want to do a deal with Taltans and if the province would get out of the way and they want to come and bring, you know, 300, 400 horse trailers into the territory and figure out a way to transport a lot of grizzly bears into California or into somewhere else, (laughs) Like, you know, I I don't – I can't speak for the people we haven't – I'm the spokesman for the Tan Central Government, but we've never had this conversation with our people. I want to make that crystal clear so nobody gets mad at me later saying, what
2: did Chad say that we agreed to do?
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: It's it's not like you're speaking to policy. So, yeah, 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 that your board's agreed to. Yeah, no idea. No, but – these are ideas, brainstorming.
3: Yeah, like, you you know, you read about how they reintroduce wolves here, reintroduce that there, and one of our, well, not one, but some of our Taltan politicians got in trouble, you know, years ago from the people because they had agreed to transport some caribou down to the Kootenays, and all those caribou died. So, um, again, I'm not speaking for anybody else, but uh, we can afford to transport thousands of grizzlies out of our area into other areas and you know maybe that's a maybe that's a win-win like all the you know I I, uh, took my kids to LA recently I saw Ellen DeGeneres's property if she wants to save all the grizzly bears I would be happy to deliver at least three or four grizzly bears to Los Angeles (laughs) it used to be grizzly habitat anyways and Ellen can you know can can see what she's trying to protect up close as can a bunch of the other celebrities if you love the grizzly bears that much then let's bring them back to their to their natural habitat in beverly hills and and all that and if you're not going to do that then then shut up and let the people that deal with them manage them properly
2: yeah yeah no for sure i mean there's a you know there's a you know, a realistic part about that, I mean, they're talking about grizzly bear reintroductions into the North Cascades of Northern Washington. That's controversial. Um, but that population ranges into the Cascade Range of British Columbia, which is one of the most beleaguered grizzly bear populations in the entire province. Like they're isolated, they're becoming genetically bottlenecked, their numbers are declining um you know and so they're talking about reintroducing them on the u.s side you know and and it's like if you're going to reintroduce them they have to come from somewhere and you know they're probably talking about moving them out of yellowstone or whatever but uh yeah i mean it's it's kind of like in conservation you know sometimes those thinking outside the box things is where some of the solutions come from and it's a whole, whole whole new wildlife management program for tall tan people if uh I mean they fly they fly lions around in Africa. Like they say, okay, this group is, you know, they can't stay here anymore. And I've seen photographs of like where the teams have these lions tranquilized in an airplane and they're all like got their IVs and all that kind of stuff, like like patients and they're they're flying them to their new home and just always hope that they have enough anesthetic for for the flight but uh maybe that's an option there flying flying a few for for conservation purposes but um okay let's let's shift into another topic i wanted to get to get your thoughts on uh, i've touched on you know this a little bit about you know we're talking a little bit about resident hunters a little bit about first nations hunters a little bit about you know guide outfitting and stuff and um tall 10 territory is you know is a destination location in british columbia for a lot of hunters there's some um, big outfitting operations up there some of them are owned by tall ten people that run guide outfitting businesses some some aren't resident hunters like to go up there for you know the stone sheep or the moose or the caribou or you know the experience of just an amazing landscape And it it seems almost like every week in British Columbia, you know, and just not even getting into like social media discussions, but there's something happening, Um, you know, conflict between these these groups, um, interests, uh, you know, jockeying for position, concerned about, you know, hunting regulation proposals are out right now and and there's places of the province uh where they're proposing to reduce resident hunter opportunity and tags in areas because first nations in those areas have said like hey this is an important area to us and it's like we kind of want like to be left alone so to speak and and then on top of that we have wildlife population problems Um, and it just seems to be at least from what I've seen it seems to be hard to get folks together Um, everybody says wildlife should come first and wildlife should be our focus and you know we should all get together and work together and then all of a sudden it's like everybody's kind of like off in their own corners defending or trying to hang on to something and I almost feel like people, there's a lot of fear in British Columbia, in First Nations communities, in the guide outfitting industry, in the resident hunting community. There's just like fear and angst. And I don't know if it's people worried about losing ways of life, losing, um, you know, the ability to go hunt if it's a power thing, if people are worried about like who's going to get to say what we're allowed to do and what, what are you seeing? What are your thoughts, you know, about this? Cause you're in the heart of the place that lots of people want to go to and, and hunt and run guide outfitting businesses and tall 10 people that need food for the winter. And
3: Well, I think uh, it's a very unfortunate and frustrating for for me i think Taltan tan had been very flexible we've tried to be very collaborative uh reasonable we've obviously put our, a lot of our own money into uh wildlife management we've tried to be creative and i think the uh the outfitters and Taltan have a decent relationship compared to to others, like other Indigenous people, probably because guide outfitting started in Taltan territory. And for a time, the vast majority of, of guide outfitting operators uh, were Taltan. My, uh, my uncle operates uh, a guide outfitting area. Uh, the Craig family has had one in their family even longer. The Iska Band... Is uh, one of our our local governments back home. They they own one, and um, it would just be nice to see all these major organizations, the BCWF, GOABC, and Indigenous groups, uh, be able to all come together and uh, and advocate. You know more more successfully, and even um, Indigenous people themselves need to take responsibility because in a lot of situations you have uh, multiple levels of government within the indigenous group that are fighting with each other. So like how can we possibly create a good relationship with other stakeholders? And I'm not saying we're stakeholders. Some indigenous people get really touchy when you say that, but how, how can we as indigenous people start to build reconciliation and collaboration with other groups when we're still, um, when there's still so much infighting. So but that being said, tons and tons of infighting with some of those other groups as well. And uh we all have to take responsibility for our part. And I just I I don't know what the answer is, but we definitely need definitely need the guide outfitting community, the resident hunting community, and the indigenous um uh, governments to, to all come together have some common direction on some pieces, throw 50 issues at the wall. And if we can only see eye to eye on five of them, fine. Let's hit those five issues as hard as we can. And I'll give you an example. Hopefully the other nations and my nation isn't upset with me, but we, um, in our part of the province, we got Taltan, we got Casca, we got Tlingit. And collectively, that's 24% of the um, the land base and there's you know some so-called overlaps so-called shared areas and we're all interrelated and it creates you know all of this tension from time to time but we created on the BC side the Taltan Kaska Clinkit all come together on all kinds of shared issues we don't agree with everything we don't even agree on uh, on wildlife. Stuff sometimes and they have different some some of those governments from uh Caskend or Clinkett, depending on who's in government, they they don't have the same practices that we have with predator management, but we all can agree on certain issues we have with infrastructure needs. We all can agree um on protecting you know the environment. We all can agree that the highway needs to be uh, improved, these kind of things. So if there's um, some issues that are, where there's a lot of tension, that's okay. We can still focus on the, the ones where we have shared interests. And one thing that we always talk about is, you know, putting the children at the center of our decisions. And, you know, that's that's three different um, groups that, that can come together and make that happen, three Indigenous groups who have – um, I don't even know how many now, some like eight or nine different governments. So we can get BCWF, GOABC, and some indigenous people together. And I, I'm, I just, I just want to see all of these people pool their resources, pool their capacity, and quite frankly, pool all of their their hatred and annoyance for the province and let's do things better.
2: <laughs> how much do you think of that That challenge of getting groups together and like I've, you know, over my lifetime, it it seems to ebb and flow. Like you have periods where it's like, you know, there's round tables, there's projects, there's processes, you know, people getting together at conferences and like, you know, really cool conversations happening. And then it kind of all falls apart and then it takes like years and it's like this constant, like up and down thing, like almost like wildlife populations where it's like, you know, good relationships and everything goes for shit and then everything kind of starts to get better. And then something, something uh, happens. How much do you think of the struggles that these three groups of people with an interest in, in hunting and, and wildlife conservation are having have to do with the people themselves versus the institutions and the biggest one i'm thinking about is we have this really clear split in this province of uh, first nations have their values their way of approaching wildlife management and hunting and allocating what they feel is sustainable based on what they know about the land and then the province is doing their own thing over here for the resident licensed hunters and you know how much information is being shared like how transparent is that process and do those processes even mesh at all but we've got two very different you know, ways of doing um, doing business when it comes to hunting and wildlife management. And, and uh, you know, I'll, uh, get your thoughts around that. Is it, is it the people that are just hard to get along and put something like wildlife first or is the conflict because of this structure that I was talking about, our laws, our governance? And it, we're never going to be successful if we keep the model the way it is.
3: Yeah, I'm sure it's a mixture. It's obviously hard for me to, uh, to speak of the governance of other organizations that I don't understand. But when I think back to the example I gave earlier about the three nations, the, uh, nice thing is that we have very intelligent, dedicated support staff that everybody respects and they have been very consistent. So even though political people have come and gone with all these lovely, nasty, indigenous uh, elections, and I know it's the same with all elections, but I'm just speaking to, to our own, um, you know, there, there's still that uh, continuity there, that corporate knowledge there, and that, that, that voice that's reinforcing why everybody's there so i think um i've seen situations with uh guide outfitters goabc and i've seen situations with bcwf where you have uh you're making some headway and then there's a new board and then there's a new group and you know then you got to kind of start over and i think nowadays Probably sound like my dad he's been here more than usual so but i I just think nowadays people they just don't get to know each other and connect as people anymore you know we'd probably be better off if we just rather than getting a fancy conference and you know going over robert robert's rules of order and all this bs (laughs) like it would just be great if we just said you know what we're all going out we're a hunt We're we're uh we're camping together we're all going to be in these cabins together we're just going to get to know each other and for the first day you know we're just playing games you got to stay in a cabin with someone from this organization that you don't know in that organization and then on day two you know we're going to talk and do this and do that and just get to know people and get and then hopefully we can uh we can truly put uh Put wildlife at the center, and and just you know get a really good facilitator and a really good um, environment that is conducive to to making good decisions. You know, another thing you can do in those situations, if you bring elders with the proper demeanor, they can be helpful. You don't want to get old people that are just miserable and they're you know stirring up shit. You want to get elders with the proper demeanor you know, people that don't point fingers, that don't swear, that don't say nasty things to each other. And it also, uh, it wouldn't hurt to, to have some young young people there. I mean, you can imagine if the three of us were all just elected into our positions, and we made promises that to our people that voted us in, and then we get to a table together, we we kind of feel responsible to stick to our guns, because that's what we told our constituents that we were going to do. But if us three came together, and and you know we all brought one elder along with us who was just really respectful, good de- demeanor, and we all brought one of our uh, you know young kids or a young kid from our from our community. I can provide you guys with with kids because I have lots, so you can you can borrow one of <laughs> mine for this exercise. It totally changes the dynamic. So I'm not trying to be airy fairy about this stuff, but geez you know when you consider how many years we've been we've been going in circles with some of these uh wildlife groups it it would be nice to do things uh differently so that um after every provincial election they come and they meet with us all of us together i don't
2: know that's that's a cool idea and you know and it just sort of seems like the more communicating we're all doing by emails and texting and stuff like that the easier it is to either kind of say things you wouldn't face to face or to be taken the wrong way um you know that so that sort of thing and it, your idea has a lot of merit and you know when we look around in hunting um we have programs, all types of programs from hunter training programs, um, you know, and mentoring and ways of bringing people into hunting. If you need to, you know, learn to do X, there's a certain, you know, process to do that. And the conferences we were talking about, the the SCI Nashville conference and maybe, you know, uh, both going together there next year or whatever. and. And um, you know, kind of seeing the seeing the bigger picture. But years ago, it was 2004, I think. I applied for an exchange program through an organization worldwide called Rotary, Rotary International, and they have a program worldwide where they take people that are like young, but just kind of like earlier into their careers and they send you somewhere as a group like four or five or six of you to like another country and you get immersed you stay with families um, you get to job shadow in the other country and learn about their other country and rotary's philosophy with this is it's their way of contributing to world peace and the way they do that is from individual relationships that people form through these exchange programs. It's just people to people getting to know, you know, humans and, and humans. And, and when you were talking about that, I, I just sort of started to think, and it would be just like cool to have programs like this in this province where it's like, wow, we got all this, you know these preconceived notions of what it's like to be a guide outfitter and they all make lots of money and they're all super wealthy and you know and they they hunt and it life is easy and it's like well maybe let's jettison a couple people into a like a a program into an outfitter camp for a hunt or for two weeks of the fall Um, let's take somebody like right there Curtis he goes up and meets your son and your family and does a hunt for a couple of weeks. And then your son comes down here and spends a spring with us or something like that and learns to hunt turkeys and then goes back and says, dad, this is the coolest thing ever. This is what we're going to have to do every single year. We got to drive to the Kootenays and hunt, hunt these turkeys. But, but through that, like we're going to start connecting as people and you know one day you're going to be in meetings together and you know you're going to be talking about the agenda and robert's rules or whatever but afterwards you're going to be like oh yeah i remember the trip and we were on that ridge or whatever and that's probably where the real headway is going to be made in in this province for some of these issues i don't know it's just kind of a a dream
3: it's good to dream we all got together we need hope good to dream sometimes had
2: had some kind of a giant giant exchange program and move moving people around and getting getting more of us to to know each other um just to kind of wrap up some thoughts here uh, you know of yourself and just sort of staying on this theme of like people need help in this province all these groups all these people need helps and it's a different dynamic everywhere you go in the province and and you've got so much experience um you know at the highest levels of politics in this province and not just with the wildlife and hunting stuff but with other stuff the resource stuff too the mining and um you know and some times that gets tied into these discussions about what can and can't be hunted the resource extraction projects kind of come into you know uh, play as well Um, you got a lot of knowledge now you know with hunting and hunting with your kids and uh, making those connections and what what what's your what's your thoughts on some things that people could be doing are you personally uh open you know to people some way shape or forms getting a hold of you and saying hey chad i heard you on this podcast or whatever you know can you come and talk to us about x or y or you know like what what are your thoughts maybe you got too much on the go already to start getting phone calls from people saying hey can you help us with this wildlife issue or something
3: yeah good uh good question appreciate the uh compliments and the recognition that was never why i got into politics and i think i've made it a point to lay low other than getting on a couple of these podcasts but as you know i (laughs) i really haven't been on that many but after listening to you guys and People keep quoting my, uh, my people, especially when you talk about uh, grizzly bears and predator management and indigenous people kind of taking the bull by the horn, so to speak. So I, I appreciate that. And um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I'm super passionate about, about wildlife. I'm no expert, but the goal is to become more of an expert. I uh, did go to the SCI show in Nashville last year, and we brought a bunch of Tattletown youth with us as well and a bunch of our staff members. And, um, cause again, you, you just want to to learn how to experience that world. I've made it, uh, I've been very intentional about trying to go out with different outfitters into different areas to, to get to know them and different families and, I've hunted around all three um, Tautan communities at, at different times because everybody's got uh, different practices and things they say. We got a couple of different dialects in the in the territory, and yeah, I would I'd be honored to to assist other other people and just let them know what um, what we've done. And I'm going to be working really hard to come up with some other creative ideas to, to help the Tauten nation. And I'm going to be doing that whether I'm president or, or doing something else, you know, and I would say of all the things that I have been able to experience and learn since being president for over nine and a half years now, um, getting to know all these different people in the wildlife industry and and being on the ground and becoming a hunter and, and having those memories with my kids, I mean, that's uh, that's way up near the top of the list, if not at the top of the list. In terms of uh, solutions and ideas, I think the last time I was on, I kind of told you guys about that ecotourism idea that I thought was, was brilliant. And unfortunately, I'm still in politics, so I haven't been able to, uh, to create that, that business myself. Malachi graduates this year, so who knows? Maybe he'll be an entrepreneur and and take that uh, take that idea and run with it. I think another really good idea would be uh, to create some kind of a charity or foundation, something that um, indigenous people can can create for themselves that is not political, meaning the people that operate over that are not elected people. And something where they can utilize their inherent Aboriginal rights and title to, to better manage the, the wildlife in one way or another. And I can give the example of, um, managing grizzly bears and wolves in Talatan territory. If we had some kind of a, a charity or a foundation and we were able to um, build that in a fashion so that you are mentoring the next generation of hunters, you're out there trapping, you're out there harvesting, you're able to take young people and and maybe even governors of of your government from from time to time to to things like the SCI show and things like that. Even if you're against uh, guide outfitting, it's still an amazing you know venue where you can connect with people and all it takes is uh you know Jerry Jones or one of his kids walking around the corner saying wow you know these people over in Canada are trying to save stone sheep and caribou and moose and here's a check for a million dollars because we think that that's important or you know something else and for for a million bucks i mean i don't know for a million bucks i think me and my son could and we could hire a handful of other guys, and we could we could easily start um, dealing with the uh, with the grizzly stuff. The wolves, that would be a whole other ball game, and you need helicopters and things like that. But that would be kind of my big idea for other indigenous people to to run with: is build your own capacity as much as you can, but maybe maybe get somebody that's entrepreneurial, extremely knowledgeable and respected, and could run run it like a business, and maybe you get some kind of charity or foundation that's out there doing a lot of that uh, that work on the ground because we have the ability to manage wildlife twelve months of the year, unlike other people. And, you know, in case I have to say it for some people that haven't heard me talk before, I mean we We love grizzly bears. We love wolves. We have a wolf clan. We um, a lot of people will not uh, shoot grizzly bears ever would never eat it because there is a spiritual connection there. But there's also a great deal of um, understanding that uh, when things are out of balance, we we do what we have to do because we also love caribou and we love moose and, you know, all these animals because of our interference as, uh, as humans, we need to we need to help keep things in, in balance and And that's really I think why I came back back on the, the podcast is because I I just want to continue doing my part utilizing my distinct, Mm, role responsibilities as a as a Taltan person as a father to to be someone out there that that can be collaborative that can put our kids at the center of these decisions and you know hopefully make sure that uh, that there's caribou and, and moose for them to hunt into the future because when we lose that as indigenous people we're not losing opportunities we're losing our inherent, Aboriginal rights and title—we're losing our—we're losing our culture, and you know it's really sad that um, so many Indigenous peoples across this province and across the country have have lost their their Aboriginal rights and title because wildlife fisheries has been has been mismanaged. So I hope we can work together and do a better job addressing it into the future.
2: Yeah, no, that's a good that's a good message um, and anybody that hunts has that common bond and you know we all want we all want the same things um our, it's the hunter's heart you know and, and we care for the wildlife first and foremost and and we've got to find a better path uh in this province and probably real soon in some places rather than rather than later and uh it's pretty inspiring to you know hear that you want to you know help in any any way shape or form that you can and um now in your role and after your careers in government's finished whenever that happens to be then you carry on you know um uh contributing and and giving back to tall tan people and wildlife and maybe the rest of the province as well. So Chad, this was a great conversation again. Really, really appreciate um, you giving us your time uh, to come on the show and look forward to more in the future and give us a call anytime you got some cool, something happening and the opportunities here to share that with, with more people. So. Really appreciate your time.
3: Appreciate the opportunity, guys, and you know, keep uh, keep doing what you're doing. I'll keep listening, and uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll I'll come on again someday when I have more more stories and a few more ideas that I think could be helpful.
2: No, that sounds awesome. Look forward to that as as well next time. Uh, hopefully, it's not what is it four years, five years, <laughs> so. Uh, then we'll be getting we'll be getting pretty old all of us. So. Uh Curtis, take it away.
1: Right on. The Hunter Conservationist podcast is brought to you by J Martin Taxidermy out of Kelowna, BC. I've said it before if you guys haven't seen it, he has a really cool grizzly bear mount. Big pedestal. It's some sockeye salmon are swimming up this waterfall and the grizzly bear's like leaning over catching the sockeye there's a red fox it's nipping at one of the uh the sockeye that are that are coming up but uh he's a he's a really talented taxidermist if you guys haven't seen his work he does some great stuff so if you're in the market of getting something preserved a hunting memory a moose whatever your kids first moose first grizzly bear something like that get it sent over to Jesse and he'll do that up for you. So as always, big shout out and thanks to Jesse and his family at J. Martin Taxidermy.
2: Cool, yep. Really appreciate J. Martin Taxidermy for supporting the show and all these uh, great conversations that we have. Um, Chad Day, uh, president, Tall 10 Central Government. Um, If you got questions for Chad folks or anything that you want to uh, know from this podcast, uh, shoot me a message uh, on social media or mark at bloodorigins.com. And um, we'll see if we can get you get you some answers and maybe we'll have some great conversations in, in the future with Chad that are maybe based on some of your questions. So uh, we're here for that too. Uh, we're all trying to learn. Uh, navigate our way through these uh, really uh, conflicting to complex times Uh, there will be a path future generations will find uh, the balance uh, but we're the ones that are plowing through the deep snow right now all trying to do the best we can so um, yeah if you got questions shoot them my way and Uh, thanks for following along on this great story Uh, if you didn't listen to episode uh, 27 the first time chad was on go back and find it and uh, maybe listen to it first before you listen to this conversation but i i think you'll be fine either way so i really appreciate everybody following along and listening and we will see you in the next episode